Welcome to the latest episode of Schneps Connects. I'm your host, Josh Schneps. I have a great host for a uh, great guest for everybody today, Mike Luba, who's co-president of Madison House Presents. And they are one of the concert industry's foremost disruptors as well as visionaries. Mike is a Long Island native. He cut his teeth booking early shows for the Dave Matthew Band and Fuji's at Emory University. Mike orchestrated innovative deals with top celebrities, including Jay-Z, U2, Shakira, the Zac Brown Band, and Madonna. He also redefined the term roadshow as he ignited Mumford & Sons Railroad Revival Tour, which took over an antique train and figured as the subject of the documentary Big Easy Express. Mike has since helped bring historic entertainment to life, including the Grateful Dead sold-out 50th anniversary fair, The Well Show, at Soldier Field in Chicago, Illinois, and Chance the Rapper's first-ever Magnificent Coloring Day at U.S. Cellular Field, and has led the restoration, reopening, and resurrection of the legendary Forest Hill Stadium in New York City's own Queens, New York which received a Polestar Award nomination for Best Outdoor Venue. And I can tell you, I've taken a tour with Mike. It is a fantastic venue, and I'm so happy to have you here and happy that you guys are back to bringing music to Queens. So welcome, Mike. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, Josh. Appreciate it. No, it's my pleasure. You know, I think little do a lot of people know outside of Forest Hills how involved you got in the community when you really reimagined Forest Hills Tennis Stadium. And, um, you know, getting into the concert business, I know, is a huge investment. And you guys really did a great job with restoration and really having deep roots in the community, working with, you know, the, the community in your backyard and throughout the city. So talk a little bit about how you brought Forest Hill Stadium to where it is today and, and your really community focused involvement. Sure. I mean, Forest Hill Stadium is really unlike almost anywhere I think in America for sure, but even around the world and that it is when people say it's in a neighborhood, I mean, there are literally houses that we share a fence line with. So without community buy-in and like real community buy-in, it just wasn't meant to be. So we, we kind of knew from the beginning that that was going to be the, probably the, the trickiest um, but also most important step of, of the whole process. And the great thing about Forest Hills was the stadium was built in 1923. The clubhouse here was built in 1912. So it has really, really primal deep roots in the neighborhood already and, and all of Queens. So I, the great thing was I was able to go to people and just say, hey, you guys did this for decades at the highest level between the open and the concerts back in the 60s. And people would say, yeah, we don't remember, we can't do it anymore, things have changed. And the reality was, was it was just, it's in the DNA of this neighborhood and it's mm -hmm. in the DNA of, of Queens to be the center of gigantic, the biggest events in the world really. So, you know, we kind of had the lost generation when the US Open moved, you know, four miles up the road um, in 1978, and it, it kind of broke the heart of the members of the tennis club. Because for years and years and years, you know, every summer, the entire world would kind of watch tennis on TV live from Forest Hills. It was where people first went from black and white TV to color TV. You know, it was where Althea Gibson broke the color barrier. Arthur Ashe won the first US Open. And on the concert side, it was even crazier in that 
the Beatles played their first gig in America after Ed Sullivan here, and they yep. landed, famously landed a helicopter on on the grass courts and then ran on stage to play. And you know, Bob Dylan, after going electric at Newport for the first time, his next gig was here, and the band was his backup band, and they had the same kind of riot-like response. And then they went to the Hollywood Bowl, so it was kind of all here, and our mission was just to try to bring it back to what it was, what it was meant to be and what it was and update it. So it's, you know, first and foremost safe and then, you know, capable of, of handling kind of modern day productions. When did it first hit your radar? Cause I know that, you know, our media certainly covered at one point it was considered for condos. They were really going to uh, try to keep the exterior, but more or less really redevelop the whole footprint and, and there were some serious considerations in, involved in that. So when did it first come to, to you and your team's eyes that, Hey, this is an opportunity here to convert uh, into, you know, a stadium as a music venue. Yeah, it's a good question. Growing up on Long Island, I was always peripherally aware of kind of the urban legend of Forest Hills. My parents both went to Queens college. They claim that they went on their second date to a, a Simon Garfunkel show here. Wow. Which I think almost actually lines up. So the way it happened was that, you know, my real job is I kind of go around the world and help bands that have crazy ideas, but that are kind of core to what the band kind of dream things for them. But mm. they generally don't make any sense financially or logistically or in any kind of normal sense. But it's kind of the thing that the the people in the band got together in a band to do, whether that was Mumford and Sons wanting a tour in a vintage train or, you know, the dead going back to Soldier Field. So anyway, I, I do some work with a band called Phoenix from France who had previously come to New York, sold out the garden, and we're looking for kind of off the wall place to play. And I cold called the club and the, the head pro at the time picked up the phone and he said, look, I don't have any idea what you're talking about or what you really want to try to do. But <laughs> the timing is incredible because after 15 years of entertaining um, relatively massive buyout from three or four of the giant New York developers, you know, to the tune of 115, $120 million to basically sell off the back of the property through a glorious combination of folks from the club who were like over our dead body, are you going to knock down this place? And the club is also governed by a very old charter from the, you know, the late 1800s. And to do something as significant as selling off property required a, a super majority of the members who at that point, a lot of the folks, you know, were 80, 85, 90 years old. And it, it almost was impossible to get them all in a room to vote one way or the other. So it was the magic combo of the preservationists who were, were like, this is the last building in New York that hasn't been touched. You know, all the sports teams, Ebbets Field is gone. The polo grounds are gone. Shea Stadium is City Field. Yankee Stadium is Yankee Stadium too. The garden is on the fourth version of Madison Square Garden. This is still ground zero the way it was built back in, in 23. So to come, we're coming up on its 100th anniversary in, in 2023. So we're looking forward to that. Unbelievable. So yeah, what happened yeah. from that phone call? I mean, timing, listen, timing doesn't, timing and good luck doesn't hurt in life. So 
you, you know, you, you get on that phone call. What happens from there? So literally the next day, I, I came out with a structural engineer and um, the stadium had basically been abandoned for about 40 years at that point. So there's a landscaping company that was using it as their kind of parking garage. Oh man. There were the original buildings from the 20 and 20s and 30s that were falling down and full of asbestos and had all sorts of problems. And people were just dumping stuff. I mean, we found a sailboat. We <laughs> dug up the original safe from the US Open that we still haven't opened. But it was just crazy. But anyway, the, the engineer spent about four hours. And at the end of it, he came out and he said, Look, it kind of feels like a war zone back here. But the reality of it is, if someone was going to drop a bomb in Queens, I'd come hide out under the stadium because it, it was made with first generation Bethlehem steel and, and poured concrete. So it's, you know, structurally in really good shape. And it was all kind of aesthetics that needed to get worked on. And so that started this whole crazy rabbit hole of, a, of an experience, which I could talk about forever. But basically I went back, I have a group of friends from high school. We, you know, at that point we were trying to see each other once a year a bunch of us started in kindergarten on Long Island, went all the way. Um, some of us went to college together, but once a year, we would make a real point to get back together. And we're kind of going around the circle. What are you up to? What are you up to? And um, I said, I was going to, you know, try to come back and, and restore the stadium. And we had a couple of drinks at that point. And one of my partner, one of my, my great friends um, was like, Hey, I, I love tennis. I love music. Let's give it a shot. <laughs> so uh, he disputes the story now, but I, it was, I said something to the effect of, look, go home, take, I think it was $2 million, put it in a suitcase, go into your backyard and just torch it. And if, if that feels okay, then, then we'll get at it. So um, sure enough, he called the next day and said, well, I didn't, I didn't go in the backyard, but we should, you know, if you think you can do it, let's, let's give it a shot. And that's how it all started. And, you know, the saving grace of the whole thing was that we all played tennis. So once we, we realized kind of through the, the conversations with the members of the club that talking about the concerts was, was scary and uninter you know, uninteresting and uncompelling to them. But when we could talk about the fact that we all played tennis and we wanted to, you know, first and foremost, it was a tennis stadium. And we made a commitment from day one that we would, we would bring the place back so that it could one day host world-class tennis again. And that was kind of a key moment in the way the whole conversation developed. And it's, I mean, as crazy as it is, as it is this past weekend, the club hosted the first Davis cup back in New York at forest Hills since like 1959 with Rod Laver. I love it. So this was the, you know, the ancestral home where the Davis cup was really born. And then, you know, neither Venezuela nor South Africa, who were the two teams who played here, were able to host it in their home country. So they needed a kind of neutral site. And the facilities here were finally up to, up to spec where they could actually do it. So it was pretty gratifying on, on a kind of deep level for us. Listen, I know you, uh, you have amazing tenacity because I remember when, I, when you gave me a tour, when you, I guess, relatively, you know, after you you took over, I mean, you didn't even have power serving the area. I mean, it took you, you know, I, I'm sure a, a million calls just to be able to get Con Ed to bring power in that you need. And I think that took a good couple of years, right? 
Yeah, I mean, we finally, about two, two and a half years ago, we finally connected to the grid for the first time, which was a huge thing for us. And the, the year before that, and potentially our, our proudest moment was we actually built real bathrooms, which for the entirety of, of the history of this, this place, they never had any sort of proper bathrooms. So it's the kind of thing, you know, I would bring my mom or my grandma to a concert and then it's like, oh, she's going to have to go in this disgusting porta potty situation. So we worked, pretty, we worked pretty hard on that too. And that, you know, was a kind of, if you didn't know, you would just take it for granted, but it took us almost eight years to um, figure out how to do it, get the city to sign on and then wrangle up enough money to build it and, and kind of make it work. Well, listen, I could hear the birds chirping behind you, but that shows how good the uh, the sound quality is in that stadium. So talk a little bit about, you know, some of the first acts you've brought there. Um, and, and then I would love to talk about, you know, where we're, we're at today. But just in terms of kicking it off and really, you know, driving momentum, talk about some of the acts that you brought into to Forest Hills. Sure. So the real credit on the band side to this, um, all sits with the Mumford and Sons guys. You know, in the year before we actually broke ground and, and started the renovation here, I was I spent a huge amount of time out on the road with them doing crazy things. They had a, an idea for a tour called Gentlemen on the Road, Gentlemen of the Road, where they would go find hidden gems of, of towns across America and Canada that had something really special and unique about them, but would never ever get a real proper big rock show. So we would every summer dig up four or eight towns that, you know, the population would be 2000 people and we would have 40,000 people come and see a concert. So I think they had some level of faith that we could work with, with crazy ideas. And um, two of the band members are actually from Wimbledon. So I'd be spending time with them like, hey, Imagine if you could do concerts in Wimbledon, you know, the, the New York version of Wimbledon is, is sitting in plain sight hiding. And they kind of blew me off over and over and over again. And finally, in March of 2012 or 13, I dragged two of the guys out to see the stadium. And the first thing they said was, what are you talking about? This is nothing like Wimbledon. This thing's a falling down <laughs> piece of shit. <laughs> but we can we can do a rock concert here. It'll be amazing. But Wimbledon, if you live in Wimbledon, was sacred ground. That the thought of a musician stampeding on the sacred grass courts was just a complete anathema to them. But once they saw yeah. it, it was actually a just a, a cement and, and iron Roman Colosseum. They were like, "Look, if you can get it safe, we'll come and play." And that's that's how it kind of all started. So talk through, I mean, you were really building a lot of momentum because it took a while for you to, to really get to where you were before the pandemic. And I feel like you were really like hitting your stride right before the pandemic. I mean, just from my kind of like seeing the lineups and the number of shows and the quality of the shows and people's recognition that you are here. So what happened, you know, for you during the pandemic in terms of the stadium? Well, we booked the summer of 2020 three different times or kind of powering through the, the summer of 21, but it's, you know, as far as 
businesses, I think probably the music business got hit harder than almost anyone. You know, we were the first to shut down. We're going to be the last to reopen in any real scale. So it was really, really, so the industry as a whole and the artists and their crews and their families and, mm. you know, it just literally off the cliff. There was no, nothing anyone could do. So we just kept planning and moving and planning and moving and rerouting. And the fact that there was never any real national protocol on how to deal with anything made it really tricky. We're, I mean, we're still dealing with it today where, you know, the, the bands who play a place like Forest Hills either tour across the nation or they tour globally. And when you have to go state by state and every state has a different set of rules, you know, it's almost impossible to really put together a, a tour that, that makes sense and people feel that they can be safe on. And so it's, I think everyone's powering through with the best of intentions, but still to this day, it's, you go, it's, the rules are different in Massachusetts than they are in Connecticut, which are different than they are in New York. And then you get down to Florida and it's something completely different. So. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect because you don't really think about it as, as I am more or less a New York based business. You know, you don't think about it, even though you're a stadium based here, you're dealing with bands that have a lot behind them in order to make everything work that are traveling from state to state. That's an interesting, you know, yeah, and really for us, how to deal with that. Yeah. For us. I mean, we have a, I think maybe because it started with the Mumford guys, but you know, every year we have, three or four artists from England. So there's been no international touring at all, which is also really tricky for people. But it feels like there's a light at the end of the tunnel and, you know, barring everything progressing, I think we're going to get out of it okay. Good. Talk about this season, what you had uh, performance-wise and what you have coming up. Uh, we opened the season with Brandy Carlisle, which was – very emotional for a lot of us um you know she had kind of been on our our bucket list from the beginning but i think she's a good example you know normally that show we would have booked 18 months two years ahead of time had all that time to set it up to properly market it to you know do all the things that behind the scenes to make the shows as successful as they can and i think that one got announced five weeks out from the date wow so again it's it's kind of Every, every show we do, we're not sure if the band's going to make it. Is someone on their crew going to come down with, with something that then derails the whole process? But we've been lucky. We've had great shows with Brandy. Um, Bright Eyes came back for the first time in 10 years to New York, which was really, again, powerful and emotional for people. We have Nas coming up on Thursday for the first time, which we're all super Amazing. psyched about. Um, he's doing a benefit for City Harvest. Um, and we're going to try to run the Halloween this year where we have a, a show on the Friday of Halloween with excision, which is kind of a new, a new genre for us that we've eased into. So we're hoping that we can keep that door wide open and not, not blow people's windows out in their houses. <laughs> but yeah. And then what we're seeing now is next summer, you know, is potentially going to be a double summer. So I think people will have basically an amazing choice to see great music every single night. I so, love it. Yeah. We'll see whether the economy can support it or if we all just go out and cannibalize ourselves. But I think people are so desperate to get out to work and 
and make music and see their friends and family that we're all just going to put it out as hard as we can hope people come you know obviously you know maybe some people don't recognize but the venue is outdoors right um but what other precautions do you have to put in place as far as uh covid for people that are attending concerts is there any other things that you've done either on the grounds or within the the seating during this time yeah i mean we did all the kind of basic low-hanging fruit of 10 million gallons of hand sanitizer and <laughs> lots of towels and running water and fresh water and, but again being outdoors it's it eliminates the vast majority of the problems but yeah Starting October 1st, we're going to require all any shows that we do really across the country, you're going to have to be vaccinated. Okay. So we're not even going to look at tests. You, you have to be vaccinated or you're not going to be able to see shows. Well, for those who haven't experienced the stadium, I mean, it's something you really have to see. And what, what's the best website or social channels for people to, to follow and look at? Uh, Forestillstadium.com. Yeah, it's it's for music lovers. It's it's really an amazing experience and and really a beautiful venue, Mike. That you guys ha have revived and you know I give you all the credit in the world for your passion for Queens and history and and certainly the love of music. And I think you know people have to come to the stadium and check it out. I mean, you guys are really touching on almost every genre of music. So there's an opportunity for everybody to to come and check it out. But you know, I just want to thank you for making uh, Queens that much more special and, and making a, an amazing destination in the borough. Yeah, man, it's a it's a treat. And again, it's it's no real genius of ours. It was when they built this place, they got it right out of the gate. And I think because, you know, it was just, it was built almost pre-electricity to watch little people play tennis. Um, so even though we can put 13, 14,000 people in the stadium, when you walk into it, it feels like it's about half the size because yeah. it was just, again, designed to watch little people play tennis and you had to be able to see it from wherever you sat and hear it from wherever you sat. So there's really not a bad seat in the house. And it's so intimate that I think people can't believe it when they show up here. And then it also has the Forest Hills Gardens factor, which is also you know, you cross under the Long Island Railroad Bridge and you go from kind of full-blown raging Queens into the twilight zone, really. I mean, it's, it's unlike kind of anywhere else. And I think it's a, it's a transportive experience for people. For sure, the first time people come in and are like, where are we? How did this yeah. happen? Did it's I really? Majestic, majestic neighborhood, really one of the nicest in, in the city of New York. Yeah. And it's for, you know, if you come from the city, it's 14 minutes. That was the, the other genius when they plopped this thing out here, when Long Island was mostly just a, a potato farm, they knew that the Long Island Railroad was gonna run right by it and that um, the subway was gonna be another block away. So it kind of seemed random, but in, in reality, the, the guys who, and the families that put it together knew exactly what they were doing. And um, they've done an amazing job protecting it for hundred and you know, Forest Hills Gardens is 1890s. So it's, it managed not to get gentrified. It managed not to, you know, it's a really multicultural neighborhood now. I, my family and I just moved about a month and a half ago into the neighborhood. Oh, wow. And being in the neighborhood just, it's, it, it um, magnified for me, you know, how diverse Queens really is. And yes. that's for me the, the coolest thing about living here is 
you can it's the best food in the world from all over the world um the best music from all over the world you go block by block and you it's you know you it really is the world's borough whoever came up with that was was on the right track and yeah we love it here it's funny you know my my as i was saying my grandparents um had a hardware store on in ozone park on union turnpike and when i kind of was headed off to college i was like i'm never coming back to long island i would never <laughs> thought of living in queens was completely it never even crossed my mind and about two months ago god themselves a brand new ford mustang it goes like 140 miles an hour and i'm thinking holy crap my mom is barely fun like how's this happening and in a bizarre twist my parents are now driving a, a sports car and i'm living in queens so it's kind of like we, uh, we flip-flop it's a magnet man it's just pulling you in yeah i love it well listen great to catch up with you keep up the amazing work and everyone has to really come out and check out forest hill stadium to to see what a magnificent venue it is yeah much appreciated thanks for all you guys do my pleasure, man. This is Schneps Connects Podcast. To listen to our podcast, visit podcast.schnepsmedia.com or stream us online through all major podcast networks.